Thank you, Kelly. Well, good morning, church. On our wedding day a few years back, I, I won't say how many years back because last time I did that I got that wrong, but a few years back on our wedding day, during the signing of the register, uh, we played a piece of music called In the Garden. And it was a song, arguably the greatest track ever written by Van Morrison. And uh, I must say, it took some convincing to get my Presbyterian fiancé of the time to believe that we should be playing some Irish mystical music during our wedding day. And, um, you know, it's hardly decently in order, is it? Uh, But I managed to convince her, and uh, it was a big ask because it was going up against To God Be the Glory with a trumpet solo. But Van Morrison held his own, I'm pleased to say. This morning, we are going to venture into the garden with the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Last week, we began a bit of a journey on through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And as we heard last week, the Bible opens with the glorious words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's the ground on which we stand. Literally, that's the ground on which we stand metaphorically and spiritually. That's the ground on which we stand. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We described how chapter one is a hymn of praise. It's a hymn of praise to our glorious creator. We heard how the world is good, how humankind is created in the image and likeness of God, which basically means we are God's royal ambassadors here on earth. This morning, we've heard of creation part two. If part one describes the universe and all its glory, part two, chapter two, focuses in on the creation of man and his relationship with his first bride. So let's just pause for prayer as we ask for God's help to understand this precious word. Heavenly Father, our Creator God, we bow before you in worship and adoration. The heavens declare the glory of your name, but so do your people. We ask now that you'll humble our proud hearts, that you'll strengthen our timid hearts, that you'll heal our broken hearts, that we might see Jesus, and in his name we pray. Amen. If you haven't already, uh, I encourage you to turn to the Scriptures, and I'm reading from Genesis 2, and I'm reading from verse 5. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The breath of life. You'll probably be aware that the the words, the Hebrew word used for breath is the same word used for spirit. God breathes his spirit into the first man and gives him life. He forms with him with precision. And he does it with an intimacy, with a love, as he breathes his spirit into that first man. 
Now, as we saw last week, and we'll soon see in man's authority that God bestows on him by naming the animals, he's given this exalted place in creation. Man has this exalted place in God's creation, and yet the text says and reminds us this morning that he was created out of dust. He was created out of dust. Psalm 104 says the following, When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. There's this holy tension that is described both in Psalm 104 there, but especially in our text in Genesis 2, of the exalted place of man, and yet he is from dust. Majesty and dust held together in the creation of man. And that's our calling. That's our pathway. Majesty and dust. And where does this man belong? Well, he is placed in the garden. Verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east of Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God places this man into the garden, and it's a place of beauty. It's pleasing to the eye. It's a place of beauty. And it's also a place of purpose. That which God has created... He's created it good, and he has created the food good for Adam. Beauty and purpose. Ben Harper sings the song, So Beautiful, How Could We Not Believe? One of my sons at the moment is tramping up the root burn, and if you've ever been up into that neck of the woods, you'll see and experience the beauty of God. If you go into the Milford Sound and into the McKinnon Valley there, you see the beauty of God. And I often sing that song when I'm out in God's creation. So beautiful, how could we not believe? How could we not believe? God has created, this text tells us, this world with beauty, and he has created it with purpose. Not by chance, not random collisions of chemicals, but beauty and purpose, created with intent, fine-tuned for life. Scientists who study the evidence, who follow the evidence, know this. Einstein, late in his life, said one of the greatest mistakes that he made in his scientific career was to deny that the universe had a beginning. Roger Penrose, the mathematician and cosmologist from Cambridge, famously stated that the odds of this universe being as ordered as it is The odds of us being in this land so fine-tuned are 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. That's the odds of our universe being created. Now, this was an atheist who worked out those odds. 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Now, for those mathematicians out there, to get your head around how small that is, there are more zeros in that figure than there are atoms in the universe. 
That's how much faith it takes to believe we are created by chance. At the centre of the Garden of Eden are two trees. Notice that at the centre, it's not the man, but it's the two trees at the garden. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. First thing we notice there is the freedom that is given to Adam. Freedom in the garden, to eat from any tree, including the tree of life. But the command of God limits this freedom. You cannot push your way to the very center. You cannot acquire all knowledge, including moral knowledge of good and evil, for if you do that, God says, you will surely die. If you push yourself to the center and reach out for all knowledge, you will surely die, he says to the first man. Now, there's some degree of ambiguity about these two trees. They seem descriptive, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but there is some ambiguity. Scripture references these trees in Ezekiel and Revelation, but it's hard to define them accurately. It would seem to me that the tree of life could be and should be the most sacred tree, and yet Adam was able to freely eat of that tree, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Life comes from God, not from a tree. Likewise, all-knowing. The trees appear to be sacramental in the sense that these physical elements point and carry some grace found in the heavens and in the character of God. Life and omniscience, all knowledge, including moral knowledge. But what is clear? What is clear from this text is the command of God. You will not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if you do, you will certainly die. From this passage, we discern three distinct vocations for the man. Listen again to verse 15 and 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from the tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So God commissions Adam with these following opportunities to work. He gives him freedom, and he demands obedience. Firstly, work. We're called to work, to cultivate the garden, literally to serve in the garden. And we're called to keep it, to take care of it, the text says. Take care of this garden. The first man is instructed. There's a lovely anecdote of a conversation between the late Prince Philip, who was farewelled overnight in England. And when he was in Dunedin, I think it was the last time he was here, and he sat down with the mayor of the time, Mayor Suki Turner, and he asked her of her political allegiances, a dangerous thing to do. But Prince Philip asked Suki, and she said, well, I'm an environmentalist. I'm into environmentalism. And Prince Philip said to her, not environmentalism, dear, but conservation. He could have been speaking directly out of Genesis chapter 2. Not environmentalism, not doing what you think is right, 
but conserving this good garden that God has already gifted to us. So the first thing that God gives to us is to work this garden, to keep it and take care of it. Notice the freedom that God gives to the first man. You're free. You're free to eat of any tree. This is a true vocation of the human being who is in right relationship with his creator. We are free. We're not placed at the center. We're not shirking our responsibility to work, yet we are free. And notice in the text that this is the first time that anything or anyone is addressed personally in creation. You are free. You are free. Eat what you will in the garden. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But what precedes these pivotal New Testament words is the if, if you hold to my teaching. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Freedom always has a provisional if. Freedom has a provisional if. For the disciple of Jesus Christ, it's holding on to Jesus' teaching. In the garden, the provisional if was the clear command that placed a boundary in verse 17. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Obedience. To work, to be free, and obedience. The text doesn't explain why there is a prohibition. The right relationship, the righteous relationship is not explained. It is just given between the Creator and His image-bearing creature. It's one of authority and unqualified obedience. And when you cross that boundary, God says you will certainly die. Work, help, work, freedom, and obedience. Such is the authority that God goes on to bestow on that first man, such as the trust he bestows, he asks the man to name the animals. And the text says wonderfully that God brings the animals to the man to name them, to see what he will call them. Verse 20, so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. And finally, the man himself is given a name, Adam. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. God sets about creating Adam's helper. Earlier in the text, he had said, it's not good for you to be alone. And so he sets about creating a helper for Adam. Look at verses 21 and following. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man he brought to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So God fashions this helper out of his own flesh, out of Adam's flesh. And then notice God brings the woman to Adam. The beauty of this kinship relationship. As Matthew Henry puts it, the woman was not made from his head to top him. 
not made from his feet to be trampled on, but made out of his side to equal, to be equal to him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be beloved. Equality, protection, and love, defining the beauty of the marriage relationship that's described here. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish, woman out of man. Her actual name is not given yet. And then chapter 2 concludes with these wonderful and foundational words in verse 24. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. They become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I wonder if it's possible to conceive of a world without shame today. Arguably, it's difficult to conceive of a world without sin. But Adam and Eve not only knew that reality, they experienced that reality. It was true for them. They were without shame and they were without sin. But for Adam and his wife, this was their reality. Jesus picks up on this passage as defining of marriage. The man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. He sets up this text as our foundation for marriage. The leaving of the family of origin the leaving of the mother and father, leaving behind so that a new relationship is formed. And then there is a cleaving. There's a permanence in the relationship, in the marriage relationship. And then, importantly, the one flesh relationship. The sexual union with all its beauty and all its purpose and all its pleasure and all its wonder is defined there as they join together, husband and wife, in a one flesh relationship. Two components of marriage required for it to endure, trust and commitment. There is a vulnerability between the husband and wife. They are naked before each other and yet they trust one another. And there is a commitment, the covenant relationship of trust and commitment. Paul goes on to say this is the picture of Christ and the church. And St. Van, as he puts it in his way, and as it touched your cheeks so lightly, born again you were and blushed, and we touched each other lightly, and we felt the presence of the Christ within our hearts in the garden, and I turned to you and I said, no guru, no method, no teacher, just you and I and nature and the Father in the garden. No guru, no method, no teacher, just you and I and nature and the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost in the garden, wet with rain. The picture of man and wife come together in the presence of God's. It's the picture of the church. It's the picture of us, united with our Lord Jesus. So what do we learn from Genesis 2, part 2 of the creation story? Well, we learn of the majesty and humility of our human calling. We are his regal ambassadors with the authority to name creation, name the animals, and yet we are created of dust, and to dust we will return. Majesty and humility. 
We're placed in this world of beauty and purpose. We're commissioned to work, to care for this land, to steward this land. We're given freedom, but we are profoundly called to perfect obedience. You shall not touch or eat of the tree of the knowledge of evil, for if you do, you will surely die. 250 years ago, Isaac Newton discovered some of the laws inherent in this creation. He discovered laws of, crea- of, of gravity and light and many others, and he called those laws natural laws. And he's helped many people understand what is the wonder of this world. Now, you break some of those laws and you will surely die. You get in a plane and jump out of a plane without a parachute, and guess what happens? You will surely hit the ground and die. You look at the sun with your naked eye for anything longer than two minutes, and you will quickly get permanent damage. You break the natural laws, and you will surely die. But what if there's some deeper natural laws that have been crafted into this world that God has created? What if there are deeper natural laws? What happens when you break those? Psalm 19 is this wonderful psalm of creation, and it begins with these words. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. That's, that's Genesis 1. That's the creation of the stars, the universe, and they are declaring the glory of God. But listen to how the psalm goes on. In verse 7, the psalm says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. You see, here in Psalm 19, The Word of God is describing these deeper natural laws. And they don't just affect gravity. They affect you and I. They affect the soul, he says. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. They are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The command of the Lord is radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. What happens when you break those laws? What happens when you break those deeper natural laws? Well, if you covet your neighbor's house, if you covet your neighbor's land, if you covet his car and his wife, you will certainly die. If you tell lies, if you steal, if you deliberately kill someone, if you dishonor your mother, your father, if you work seven days a week, you will certainly die. You break the laws of God and you will certainly die. If you place yourself at the center of the garden and do as you see fit, you've died already. If you place yourself at the center of the garden and do as you see fit, you've died already. But here's the gospel of grace. God has provided a way for you to know life, life in its fullness. You see, Genesis 2 
begins with two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The two trees become one tree at Calvary. At Calvary, the righteousness of God is revealed, where the law is fulfilled in perfection. You might have placed yourself at the center. You might have trampled all over God's laws. You might this morning, right now, be in that place where you are wandering away and beauty and purpose is ebbing away from your life. But the Word of God says to you, if you come to the one tree, if you come to the cross of Calvary, you can know life and life in its fullness. So my question to you this morning is, what's at the center of your garden? What's at the center of your garden? And before you say, Stu, God is at the center of, of my garden, before you quickly respond, know that God sees you. He knows you. You might be able to fool me, but you can't fool God. What's at the center of your garden? What's at the center? You see, God is asking and demanding and requiring out of his love for his son, the Lord Jesus, to be at the center of your life. That's where true righteousness begins to flow. That's when your life begins to make sense. So the invitation this morning, as we reflect on those two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is to be reminded again that those two trees become one tree on the cross of Calvary. When you leave all that's entangling you, when you leave behind and you cleave to Christ, you form a union where you find life and life eternal. Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. If you find yourself this morning wondering or wandering, then the invitation now is for you to come back through the one tree, through the cross of Calvary, to know life in all its beauty and purpose. So, Father, we thank you for the foundations of truth that you have set in place at the beginning of time. You've created this good earth. You have created man and woman. You have created us in your image, and you call us with a sense of purpose and a sense of beauty, and you say, come, come and live with me. Work this good earth. Care for this good earth. But above all, you say, come to me and know me, trust me, trust me, trust me at the cross, trust me at the resurrection, trust me in the power of my Holy Spirit. And so God, I would ask now that you would pour out your grace in the truth of this word, in the power of your Holy Spirit. For those of us who have trampled over your laws, for those of us who have, have wandered away or even worse, we have tried to make our lives at the center, Lord. We repent and we come back to the one tree. We come to the cross. Lord, this morning, we declare that we want to place you again at the center. Jesus, 
be the center of our lives. Be the Lord of our lives. Take charge of our lives again. This we ask in your name. Amen.